This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. You're listening to the UAE's number one talk radio station. This is Afternoons on Dubai Eye 103.8. You are listening to the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Fantastic to have you with us. We had a bit of a relationship special on today's episode. Talking about the red flags that you shouldn't ignore with a dating and relationship coach. And is technology ruining your relationship from gaming to gadgets? We brought in clinical psychologist Dr. Sarah Rasmi to talk about when is a little casual phone use tipping over into a problem and what you can do about it. Talking education relating to gender parity. And with that new law coming in around the age of business starting a little bit younger, 18 years instead of 21, could we be seeing a drop off in university admissions? Education insiders had their say, plus the latest from where we were broadcasting live, the Abu Dhabi HSBC Championship with the Championship Director. So what are some of the red flags you've noticed when dating, chatting or in relationships? What did you do about them? We're talking about the signs that you shouldn't ignore when you're looking for love with Ira uh, Celerescu is joining us. She's a dating and relationship coach. Ira, this is absolutely fascinating because it's so personal. And some of the messages we've had are, yeah, as I said, really, really fascinating. But before we go to the text line, and we've had a number of questions too. I think it would be really useful if you wouldn't mind defining what red flags are and maybe giving us a couple of examples that you've come across with clients or, you know, just in general, modern love life. Hi, Helen, and hi, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here again, and I'm happy to talk about red flags because they are such an important matter in relationships and dating. Mm -hmm. In a nutshell, red flags are warning signs that appear usually during dating, and they indicate that there are problems or challenges on the long run. And now, um, just for a couple of examples, um, red flags can mean jealousy, positivity, ghosting, love bombing, uh, people that only talk about themselves. They're mysterious in a way that they are like, too mysterious, like they are, they are holding stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe they're gossiping about their, all, all of their exes. Of course, the list is endless. <laughs> and this is endless. And again, it can be so personal. I think everyone listening today mm-hmm. will have been like, oh, I, sh- I should have listened to my instinct. Or I should have listened to my best friend. You know, the signs were there that this mm-hmm. person perhaps wasn't for me. You know, it wasn't a good match. Or this person was perhaps potentially really damaging mm-hmm. um, and was, was going to be really, you know, potentially very bad news. I mean, I've certainly had this. I had one ex that, you know, would look through my phone mm-hmm. and deleted, you know, all men's numbers, you know, like, you know, colleagues and friends, yeah. you know, it was, it was bizarre controlling behavior. And when I realized that I ended it and I'm really proud that I did, but I also look back at red flags that I probably willfully ignored because I kind of hoped that they would change. Um, but I wondered, you know, out of those lists you were just talking there about, you know, ghosting, um, possessiveness, um, withholding mm-hmm. information. Do there tend to be any that fall into kind of typically male red flags and typically female? Is there anything that you've noticed there? It can definitely be both, but because we're both women, and let's say we talk a little bit from a female perspective, and usually from what I noticed and from my personal experience, women are more inclined to ignore the red flags, more than men. To ignore them, why? Uh, there, there are so many reasons, because they want to change the other person. They think that we don't know the person well enough, we don't trust our judgment, or, you know what, it's a lot about self-respect and self-love. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, and usually red flags in the early stages of dating, they can be subtle, they can be very obvious, it really depends. The problem in general is that uh, people, and again, it's more women than men, from my experience, they are dying to get in that relationship no matter what, and for this, they ignore the red flags. And on the long run, this is a big problem. So you're willing to overlook something that, and that, I think that was the case for me in you know, early 20s, perhaps not as self-confident, lower self-esteem, really like the idea of someone rather than the reality of someone. But really interesting to get people's take on this. So the messages we've had on the relationship red flags that people have noticed or uh, would, would, would perhaps be a bit of a deal breaker. Um, Eric is saying, Jim or elevator selfies and obsessed with their mother. Um, message here from D mm-hmm. saying I had a boyfriend who got jealous of my relationship with my family members oh so, my yeah, th- so I think that kind of controlling possessive behavior yeah. is um, is really really tricky and Sarah saying ex- exactly that anything around being controlling of time friends clothes etc and I love this message from Kira saying not a red flag but excellent advice if they tell you something about themselves believe them the first time yeah. 
Yes, usually men are very direct and very straightforward. And what they say, yes, yes, believe them. And like I was saying, we were saying earlier, we've all been through situations, dating or being in a relationship, and there are so many red flags, uh, um, so many red flags there. But we stay because we want the relationship. And usually women are like that more than men. I think men pull away faster than women when they see things that they are not good for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, man. We'd love to hear from you. What are some of the red flags you've noticed? Yeah. Um, I should hear from Naz saying um, vanity in women, constant taking of photos. Tarek saying I recently got out of a relationship, but my ex still contacts me, and I get that pit in the stomach feeling. So I remember what our relationship was like and how she made me feel. It definitely affects men too. <laughs> We're always told to steer clear of people who exhibit so-called red flags in relationships. What are some of the common signs that we should be looking out for? Whether you're dating a new guy or girl, long-term partner, even in a marriage, you might not be aware of the warning signs. Constant put-downs, emotional abuse, controlling behavior, withholding information. We're talking now about dating and let us know some of the red flags that you are particularly tuned into or things that you have unfortunately not ignored in the past. Joining us live on the line is Iris Chalarescu. She is a dating and relationship coach and I wanted to ask you Iris a little bit about why do some of these people, you know, the, the toxic individuals act in a certain way that their, you know, their words, their actions would be interpreted as, as red flags. What do we know about the why? Yeah, I'll tell you why. It's a very good question. Um, I think this world is divided into two types of people, and it's very simple. Everybody is coming with past trauma, whether it's childhood or partners or adulthood, whatever happened. Now, category number one chooses to fix their trauma, and they're normal people like us. Category number two is the toxic people. <laughs> that's right? very generous of you to say like us, but thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what I believe. Uh, because, again, everybody has trauma. I think there is no exception. But there are people who choose to fix the trauma or people who, who choose not to. And those people are the toxic ones, the narcissists, the abusive ones, the dysfunctional ones. The ones that, you know, I think most of us, we experience a relationship with, with such a partner. Um, and, again, why they are like this? Why? Because they, they just, they would rather, you know, um, they, would, they would rather be on the abusive part. They would rather complain and um, not fix their issues and hurt normal people like us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I appreciate the normal label. It's, 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 that's very generous of you. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, so what should we do when we identify? Len, I'm, I'm going to give you a scenario. Um, you're mm-hmm. looking for love. You're on Tinder, for example. Other dating mm-hmm. platforms do exist. Um, and you notice that somebody is, let's use ghosting, you know, or, or mm-hmm. not being very responsive, you know, seems to be disengaged or seems to be, you know, kind of breadcrumbing mm-hmm. you a little bit. A little bit of information here might be a late night message there. Um, but you've seen a photo and you think they're hot and, you know, they've got a job that you think, OK, this could work with me. And you have had some good chat before. You, you, the hopes uh-huh. are there is really what, what I'm saying. You know, how, what can we do to save ourselves from pain, wasting time, trauma in those early stages? I will tell you how it works very different if you're 20, 30, 40, or 50. Why? Because mm. when we're 20, we're young, we're getting burned. And I will tell you something else. Getting burned is not that bad. Because getting burned, it teaches us who we are, what we can tolerate, what not. We learn more about ourselves. We create our boundaries and we raise our standards. So it's very different of how is your approach in your 20s or in your 40s. I'm 40 now. So in my 20s, I was like a butterfly. You know, everything is okay, it doesn't matter, and I have all the time in the world to lose. In my 40s, mm-hmm. this will never happen mm-hmm. again. So it's, it's really related. It's a matter of age and a maturity, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, this is how I see it now. Yeah. And also how much you want it, you know. A message here saying um, the reason many people overlook red flags mm-hmm. is because someone is hot. <laughs> well, look, for example, everybody wants in that. Yeah, no, everybody wants this. Everybody, and it's, it's okay. We're all, at the end of the day, we're all looking for love. We want to be loved. We want validation. We want to be appreciated, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, for example, me personally, I'm in a point in my life, I will not take what I was taking 10 or 20 years ago. I would rather be single for a while until I meet the right partner. And luckily, I met him organically, not on a dating app. And it's possible. Oh, let's lastly talk about some of the green flags. Some of mm-hmm. those behaviors that can you know really encourage you that actually this could this could have legs this relationship could be going somewhere what should we be looking for rather than rallying against Mm -hmm. 
that's another very good topic, and I love it. Um, definitely, green flag are super important as well, and it's always good to look for those. So um, it could be different from everybody, but in a nutshell, I think everything uh, the fun- fundamentally should be respect. If there is no respect, there can be money, there can be success, there can be chemistry, anything. But if there is no sus- uh, respect, there is nothing else. So respect, then very good communication, um, loyalty, understanding, kindness, and of course. Love, but love comes in time. Love is something profound and um, complex that is being built. Mm-hmm. So, so the things that I just numbered, I would say they are the pillars that uh, support the relationship. It's funny when you're saying that. I was thinking about to all of my awful ex-boyfriends. Um, and any friends listening will be like, yeah, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Um, but they all got the, given nicknames based on their kind of horrendous behavior. And when I met my husband mm-hmm. and we started dating, I was mm-hmm. like, he, doesn't, he hasn't been given a nickname yet. And... There was no game playing. I think that was the most important thing for me. And I was like, okay, he's messaging when he says he's going to message. Um, yes. There's no, does that make sense? And it was such a relief. Basically, such yeah, a basically relief. his, uh, his uh, words are aligned with his actions, right? Something yes. like that. Well said. Mm-hmm. Well mm-hmm. said. And yeah. you can relax into something rather than feeling tense or lucky to hear from somebody. Mm-hmm. It's a horrible feeling. It really, really is. Yeah. Um, Iris, yeah. we had a couple of messages um, asking about mm-hmm. what, where to find people, which I think is a topic for another day. But if anyone does want to work with you and mm-hmm. find out more about the, the services that you offer, can, can you share how you work and how to get in touch? My, yes, my, uh, how to get in touch. Uh, I'm, I'm also called, I'm known as Best Talk in Town because I have my little show. It's a dating and relationship show. It's a, it's a live show on TikTok every Tuesday, 10 p.m. Dubai time. And there I discuss different topics and uh, all my social media is called Best Talk in Town, Instagram and uh, TikTok as well. It's very easy for people to find me. They will find my website there. They can send me an email or they can just draw me an Instagram message. Um, and um, look, it's very, it's, I know nowadays we're living different times. It's not that easy to connect with people, but it's possible. So um, one of the things that I'm encouraging this year a lot and I push them, it's to go out in the real world to meet people. Stop relying 100% only on the dating apps. Because online dating, okay, it's here to stay, but let's not just stay there because we're sitting in the comfort of our house with a phone in our hands and we're just swiping right and left and then we're complaining. Oh, I'm alone. There is nobody. Go out of your house. (laughs) They are not going to knock on the door. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Put on some makeup. Groom yourself as a man. Go out. And what am I going to do? I'm shy. No, polish your skills. Go out. I met the, uh, the person that I'm currently dating by traveling alone to Zanzibar two months ago, organically, in a restaurant. And it's, it's amazing. And if I can, and I'm not special... Hmm? Sorry. Yes, you are. No, I think I think we'll we'll do another show for sure on exactly that brushing mm-hmm. up your skills for dating in real life, mm-hmm. not just yeah. not just in the swiping world. Iris, thank you so so much. Really appreciate your time. Thank you, um, Helen. We'll catch up very soon. education this hour on the 24th of Jan it's International Day of Education so we're reflecting on where we are now when it comes to gender equality gender parity and what needs to be done joining us live on the line is Professor Dame Heather McGregor Provost and Vice Principal at Heriot Watt University in Dubai we can't skip past the Dame that is a recent addition Heather congratulations tell us more Oh, thank you very much. So, yes, I was um, very privileged to uh, be awarded a damehood, which is the same as a knighthood, but for women, um, uh, by the king in the New Year's honours list. So that was very exciting. This is for your services to education and business in Scotland. And you've done so much in this over over your career. Um, And I want to explore a little bit about really where you think the further education landscape is now and how it's changed since you since you started, Heather. Can you tell us a little bit more? Well, it's it's changed a, a lot, not just since I started, but over my lifetime. And in fact, mm. it would be remiss of me not to tell you uh, that my personal uh, culinary memory of when my life started was fish fingers. <laughs> and um, and eating like fish fingers makes, <laughs> I still like them. And I don't get to eat them very often, actually. But it does take me back to uh, my childhood, which was, you know, nearly 60 years ago, because I'm 60 now. Um, and uh, in that time, you know, when I went to university, which was uh, between quite a long time ago, and I graduated from my undergraduate degree in 1984, uh, only 18% of, of people, not just women, people in the United Kingdom went to university in those days. 
And what, what do we and I was, where, where is it now, do you think? What, 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 what it's, I know exactly where it is now. It's, it's, uh, it's almost 50%. It's effectively 50%. No, I, I and, I've, got, I've got really mixed feelings about it, and I'm going to be, going to be completely honest. I'm, I'm, mm -hmm. I don't feel like everyone should go to university. <laughs> I don't feel well, like half, half of the people still not. I mean, fifty percent is not is not seventy percent or a hundred percent. And I I do agree with you that uh, universities have uh, you, you know they're very variable provision. There are ten thousand universities in the world, um, and uh, you know the fact that the the league tables really only look at the top one thousand shows mm. you that um, that there is very very broad provision everywhere in the world. Uh, but I I you know the higher education landscape has changed a lot. There are 146 universities in the UK now. And we were the first UK university to set up a, a campus in Dubai. And we've been here 17 years. And right from the beginning, Heriot was the was pretty well the first the first university in Scotland and pretty well the first university in the UK to admit women full stop in the yes. 1800s. Um, and um, and we had we were the first one to have a woman principal. We had a a, a, a a woman principal long before anybody else did. You know, right back in the early part of the twentieth century. Uh, and I think that an education is one of the uh, you know one of the most important gifts that we can give any woman anywhere, uh, because if, if we if we gift people an education, it's a lifelong. It's a lifelong benefit to them, and that, and that's why educating women, for me, is 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 been a lifelong passion. Can I ask then, um, what subjects are we seeing more women move into now that perhaps we didn't see um, a few decades ago? What have we noticed in terms of trends and patterns when it comes to certain industries and areas? Well, um, can I just say that the rot sets in long before you get to university. Mm -hmm. That uh, uh, girls um, are typically not encouraged to do mathematics to uh, beyond a certain point it's almost as though it you know they are it, it, somehow it's felt that maths isn't a girl subject and um and that the slightest chance of someone saying well i don't think i'll carry on with maths beyond say 16 or something or they don't carry on to the end of their school days with maths um it, it it's not there should be somebody, in, in my view, in schools lying down in front of a moving truck to prevent people from giving up maths. So what, what are your thoughts even, then on, on, on Rishi's Maths to 18 um, chat a few weeks ago? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I have to say that there's every evidence that that mm -hmm. will be a very good thing, that doing mm -hmm. some kind of mathematics all the way to the end, that um, at King's uh, College in London have set up a school in um, in South London, a state school, this is a free school, um, f which only teaches maths, further maths, physics and chemistry at A-level. And they admit from all comprehensives um, in London, you know, anybody can send their children there. There's obviously a admissions interview and there are limited numbers that they take, but they have one of the best uh, university outcomes of any school in London. And it, it, I think it is really, maths is such an important thing, even if you can only continue it at a low level, mm -hmm. continuing it to the end of your time. We we actually, in Scotland, we have a, a maths for engineers uh, course, which we encourage uh, particularly girls to go on so that they can convert into our engineering courses. Um, but if you've given up maths early, it's it's quite a difficult thing. And I think that holds a lot of women back. I but we see it now a lot of women engineers, computer sciences, and more importantly now, the new, you know, data is the new oil, as you know, um, and data science is another massive intake for us from women. Marking International Day of Education, having a little reflect back now with Professor Dame Heather McGregor. She's Provost and Vice Principal at Harriet Watt University. She's a dame, as I just said, talking about her contribution to education. And we're also looking really at gender equality, gender parity. What has changed over the last few decades and what could be coming in the future? Um, Heather, before we come to education, you were a founding member of the 30% Club, campaigning for more women on the boards of FTSE 100 companies. Tell us a little bit about a bit more about that and why you feel, as you say, you know, the, the, the rot sets in early. What can we be doing now to get more women into powers of, uh, you know, positions of power? Yes, well, I was I was one of the small group of women with Helena Morrissey who set up the 30% Club in 2010. Mm -hmm. The reason we did that was that the, the percentage of women on FTSE 100 boards, and that's only the top 100 companies out of about two and a half thousand on the stock exchange. 
um, that was 12%, 12% women on boards, and it hadn't changed. I think even more shocking than the fact it was 12% was that it hadn't budged for 10 years. And so we thought, well, nothing's go if nothing's going to change, we're going to have to try and change it. And we're also um, very against legislation because we were worried that if we got legislation, then people would say, well, you're only on the board because we had to put you there because we were, it was a forced legislation. Mm -hmm. um, so we went about the business of trying to persuade and influence chairmen. And um, that, you know, and that ended up being very successful. And now there are 30 percent club chapters all over the world, including, of course, here in the GCC. I wanted to ask you um, a couple, a few messages have come in on the text line, actually. We're going to come to them in a minute. Before we get to that, I wanted to ask about how, what, what role you believe educational institutes contribute to creating equal opportunities and I guess why it matters for society as a whole. You know, what are some of the positive impacts we can see if there is that parity? Um, well, apart from anything else, uh, you know, Helena, women represent 50% of, of the world and 50% of the talent pool. Mm -hmm. And so at its most simple, frankly, if you're not training and developing women on a, on a par with men, then you're just missing out on, you know, society, industry, government, everyone's missing out. So that's the reason that education is there. It's to support and encourage and develop everyone. Um, and everyone should have access to it. And, and I, and I, you know, one of the reasons I was honoured in the New Year's honours list was because of the work I have done to try and make that possible. And I really, really believe in it. And this does come, of course, from, you know, people like you who, who have got that platform and got that leverage, but it also comes from a parental role as well. And I wonder what message you had to parents today who are looking to encourage girls and boys, and we're going to come to a message from Louise in a minute, about making sure they're reaching their potential, not just in terms of academics, but also following their passions too. Yeah, well, there's there's a couple of, of things here. I think, um, you know, first of all, the um, from parents, I really would encourage you, please don't let anyone, boy or girl, give up maths before they absolutely have to. Um, and and secondly, keep your options open. It's not necessary to do a vocational course at university. You know, as long as they go and do something that they enjoy and that they're good at, um, and as long as they acquire some softer skills on the way through, that's what matters. They will all be employable at the end. It doesn't matter that they're not a doctor or a lawyer or an accountant. What matters is that they do well and that they're intellectually stretched and that they develop, a, you know, as a rounded individual and adult during that time. Um, I, I think that there's, um, a, you know, another thing uh, is important about education is is to still be involved in it. I mean, I still teach. I, I, I'm the head of, you know, a very large university here in Dubai, but I still teach uh, on both undergraduate and postgraduate courses. And I make sure I do that so that I stay in touch. And actually listening to one of the ads on your ad break, I am running a class at the Dubai Festival of Literature. So if anybody listening to this wants to be taught by me, they can come along and learn how to write a weekly column uh, at the Dubai, at the Emirates Festival of That's Literature. fantastic. You were, you were um, contributing to it this Sunday. I'm doing a times. teaching a class there. Oh, brilliant. For, well, I'll, I'll see people. you there. Um, thank you. I'll, can we go to the okay. text line just quickly? Because I've got a, a couple of really interesting points. One from Pretty saying, I'm grateful to my parents for always encouraging me to pursue my passions. I saw friends at school who were pushed into certain careers and even their brothers prioritised for further education. I have to say, I think Dubai is quite interesting in, in terms of very you know, high academic achievement um, and still a lot of parental pressures going on, which I completely understand, especially you know, certain cultures and, and you know, what you become used to. And it's, it, it's very difficult line to, to toe and to, and to balance and I think your point earlier about encouraging that passion encouraging the love of learning um and those softer skills are so so crucial because then the last thing we want to do is be discouraging children and young people from this what can be a lifelong love of learning that can go through to you know 60s 70s and beyond um louise saying hugely exciting for girls but does heather think this could go the other way and boys get left behind it's a bit of a scary time to be a mum of boys interesting point louise what do you what do you take from that heather um well i, I you know louise i would give you some encouragement and support here that the the people who will get left behind are um, it, this is an intersectionality answer that the people who will now get left behind i think it's not so much boys but boys of a certain background um if i would uh, direct you to mary claire travers book called uh, why teachers matter which is about white working class boys and why they get left behind i, I think if you have uh, committed parents as I'm sure you are. Um, and I'm a mother of three boys. Uh, I don't have any girls. Um, and committed parents that your your life outcome, if you're, you know, for all children, your life outcome is very heavily dependent on the engagement of your parents. Mm -hmm. So I have no concerns about your son. 
thank you for that, Heather. Any any kind of parting words, I guess, on your hopes for the future when it comes to the gender in education and then beyond education as well? Where do you think we're going to be in 10 or even 20 years? Uh, well, what I would like to see in 10 or 20 years is that that people are engaged in lifelong learning. This model of go to school, go to university, get a job uh, is broken now, actually, Helen. And what we need is for people to re-engage with education at every stage of their lives. So for anybody listening to this now who feels like coming back and doing an MBA at the weekend with me or indeed anybody else, or um, or feels that they actually want to pursue a doctoral degree later in their stage, or you know just wants to do a one-off course in finance or mm. finance for non-financial -finance, people maybe this is the time to do it you're never too old you know i qualified as an accountant last year i'm 60 yeah, it is a lifelong learning is really important and that is what i think we will see in 15 or 20 years time it won't be anymore that education is something you do when you're young Thank you so, so much for your time. Hugely valuable insights there and, and lots to think about. And congratulations again on the Dame. Professor Dame Heather McGregor speaking to us from Harriet Watt University. Wishing you and the team there very happy and healthy 2023 and, we'll, and happy International Day of Education as well. We've had some really interesting news for young and aspiring entrepreneurs over the last week or so. The age limit for running a business here in the UAE has been revised. This is under the new commercial transactions law and according to the Ministry of Economy, reducing the legal age to, from, for, for capacity for pra business practice from 21 years to 18 years. We're speaking now to Soraya Bashti. She is the Regional Director of Crimson Education. Soraya, thank you for joining us. I'm really interested to think about how this could be impacting Everything from university admissions to is it possible to juggle this um, and also kind of what we're going to be seeing coming through. Can we can we start with this? You know, what, what impact do you think we're going to see on the number of students who are going to be pursuing a university education here on the UAE? Do you think they're going to be going for, you know, CEO instead? Um, I actually don't think it would have a huge impact on the numbers because everywhere else in the world or many other countries in the world kids can work from a young age or start businesses and they still pursue higher education abroad in droves i think um kids still know that studying at a top universities is one of the best things that you can do even if your goal is to be an entrepreneur there's actually this um you know sort of myth about the silicon valley dropout they love to celebrate the cult of the dropout that inspired entrepreneur who decides so traditional true. education isn't for them so true oh, but the reality i didn't go to university and i'm a billionaire now this tends to be the kind of common the common narrative of you know i i i, I dropped out and this is what i drive or you know and, and right. I, I get that i mean that 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 is that is absolutely the case for i would say a very small minority of yeah. people you also have a lot yeah. of people who were grafting at university and networking and learning what they needed to learn in order to become hugely successful yeah and most of those people that are, are known for espousing this like people like peter Thiel, um even elon musk they dropped out from where um wharton stanford harvard <laughs> yeah, the reality is that my combinator founders only seven percent didn't go to university and only three percent actually dropped out 35% of them went to Harvard, Stanford, Yale, Princeton, MIT, and Berkeley. Um, so mm. it's really still uh, still hugely important to go to university. And many of these guys met their co-founders at university. I think part of the Very reason true. why um, those dropouts were successful is because even if you get there, it says something about your grit, your determination, your resilience, and so on. Mm -hmm. What, what this does open up an opportunity for is starting a business and running that alongside your studies. And yeah, often, for, exactly. for many people, earning a few extra dirhams or dollars. I, I know very few people that didn't work during university in order to fund yeah. you know, their lifestyle or indeed pay their rent. I was one of them. I worked as a hostess, pouring water for actors from Amadale. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> and I, you know, did I think that, that's great. You know, when you think about contact hours, you think about... Yeah, top, you know, topping up a loan or, you know, parental contributions. But starting a business here in the UAE is now possible from age 18. Do you think it is mm -hmm. possible to, to juggle both? 
I do think so. I mean, I think that working on an entrepreneurial project is actually just like a, a great way to apply what you're learning in university because especially if you're studying something really theoretical, be it business or, or even if you're studying, um, you know, economics or finance, what better way to actually um, integrate what you're learning than being in the market, speaking with customers um, and, and doing, you know, gaining all the skills that you're going to need once you graduate from university. What about even before that, you know, taking a gap year or a gap year or two and starting an entrepreneurship journey in order to bolster your chances of getting into a top university do you think it's something that's looked upon favorably yeah I I also took a gap year and um, I was working on an entrepreneurial project I think it absolutely is because it demonstrates real world skills thing is if kids are taking gap years then they have to be presenting an application that is you know um, significantly stronger than someone who's in high school because they see that this Mm -hmm. person now has a lot more time to work on their applications so I think it's absolutely amazing. And what I can, you know, give you some examples of yeah, students. Yeah, I love that. We yeah. Work. yeah, we had one student, Sunil Singh, who, um, so he didn't start this while at university, but, sorry, while in high school, but he, we supported him to go to Harvard. He eventually ended up at Bridgewater, the world's largest hedge fund. And then, and he started his own, um, uh, he started his own business while at, while at Harvard, got to Y Combinator, got, I think, something close to a million dollars of, of funding um, for his crypto uh, startup. And, and Crimson now has funded his startup as well through our venture capital fund for our former students. And uh, we have another student, Sid, who um, has started a, a, he started a business called Comprich while he was at high school in DIA, which is a really fantastic platform. He found that students and he had a really meaningful experience through the Tiger Global Case Competition. His team actually were the um, worldwide winners from thousands of applicants. And then he started a platform to give students more access to other kinds of competitions that were equally beneficial. He now has like 1,200 users across 60 countries, and he's just gotten his acceptance letter from Oxford. This which makes is really me feel exciting. so inadequate. It really does. <laughs> and I'm thinking back, would I do things differently? I'm not sure I would. I think I was just inclined to laziness and having a good time. I'm not sure I could have hustled and studied at the same time, but power to people that do. I guess my question, yeah. last question to arrive is for parents listening today. How can you navigate some of the conversations where, you know, a young person might be saying, well, do you know what? I'm going to pursue this full time. Um, I'm going to start this business. I've got a dream and I don't want to go to university anymore. What, what would you say to anyone who's now thinking about pursuing this new pathway instead of what might have been laid out for them previously? Oh, instead of university. Mm. Well, I mean, I would still, I would still try and, um, I mean, university isn't for everyone. It is useful for most students, though, who do want to pursue that. So I would um, first try and discuss with them if there's like a middle ground option where there's somewhere, maybe it's somewhere like Babson College, which is known for being really strong with entrepreneurship mm. in the US, somewhere that might suit them. There are lots of different kinds of curricula and structures available across different countries and different universities. If they absolutely aren't open to that, I think, you know, creating a uh, psychological safety around failure, we've talked about that a lot, Helen, and um, so that students feel comfortable taking risks, they can be creative and explore. But then also, just like Sid's example, um, help your child find, like this, a good business should come out of a genuine need. Sid, felt like there was a need he wanted this product it didn't exist and therefore he created it so really helping them explore that testing that um, and then getting them exposure to other entrepreneurs or business people so that they can gain valuable skills and also hear the trajectories of different people who've started businesses there's many ways to do it um, yeah I think that that's that's a good place to start and then if they can find a mentor that's great because mentorship is you know, like Silicon Valley runs on men- mentorship, but um, even for a student who's starting a small business, that can be one of the most transformative things you do is, is find a really good mentor who's able to coach you not only on the technical steps of how to set up the business bills or the kind of soft skills and, and that, that are required to succeed with that. Sorry, thank you so, so much. A big part of what you do there at, at Crimson Education is helping people get into their kind of dream school. And I, I wondered, lastly, when is the time right to start speaking to an education consultant about, you know, is it 14, 16, 17? When, when can people reach out to you and get some advice and a bit of a, a, bit of a handhold in the, through the process? 
I mean, if they're thinking about universities, then, you know, 14, 15, 15 years old is typically um, when students start speaking with us. But we actually teach entrepreneurship through our division Crimson Rise for kids around 9 to 14. And it's um, sort of age appropriate, focused on both soft and hard skills. They can learn either social entrepreneurship, um, just regular entrepreneurship, debating, coding, that kind of thing. And we coach them through how they actually can design their own startups, develop their own ideas. Um, so as young as nine, wow. if they want to explore that. And what's the best and way of getting in touch? And that's not university. Folks. No, 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 no. That's just really interesting to see what's available. Um, and what's the best way of getting in touch with you guys? Crimsoneducation.org. You can find our numbers there. Um, or we're on Instagram. We share a lot of, you know, free resources, events and, and that kind of thing on our Crimson Education underscore Mina page. It'll be really interesting to catch up in a year's time and see what we're what we're seeing coming out of these young, incredible entrepreneurs and the impact it may have had on, on university. In the meantime, though, Sarai Bahashi, thank you so, so much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Original director at Crimson Education. Let us know your thoughts. And if you've got a young entrepreneur in the family, get in touch. I would love to speak to them about their dreams, their passions, their bottom line. Drop me a message on 4001. Use your A around play up and you've got the WhatsApp too. We're talking technoference. The digital world has become very much part of our daily lives. We cannot avoid it, but the constant presence of technology can have an adverse effect on our relationships. In several ways, we can be connected to social media networks on one hand, but be disconnected from the present moment in real-time relationships on the other. We're talking technoference this afternoon with Dr. Sarah Rasmi from Thrive Wellbeing Centre, and already lots of messages and some concerned listeners, to be honest, talking about the role that technology is having when it comes to interrupting their love lives, their relationships, even that between that of parents and children as well. Dr. Sarah, can you explain a little bit about what you think of, how you define technoference? Absolutely. So technoference is exactly what you just described, which is essentially when our use of technology is interfering in our relationships with anybody to whom we are close. And we've seen in the psychological literature evidence to suggest that people in committed relationships who report high levels of technoference experience increased conflict and decreased relational satisfaction. And in some cases, some studies have found that people will also report more symptoms of depression. So negative impacts or at least links to psychological health as well as important elements of a relationship. Um, so this is very much a, a real life. It's, it's, I mean, it's a very definition of a modern problem. This wasn't, this wasn't the case 50 years ago where, you know, we'd be sitting in your living room and you'd be perhaps around a table, you might have the radio on. Now, a very common scene, and I'm certainly not judging because it's definitely the case in our household, is, you know, a couple sitting next to each other on their phones. <laughs> and there might be something on, um, but you might be sending each other something. But chances are you might be engaging with someone outside of that relationship. I don't mean that in terms of being unfaithful, but certainly your attentions might be elsewhere. So how can it impact relationships negatively? You know, do you feel like we're feeling more disconnected, even though we've never been so connected? Yes. And I think one of the things that is really contributing to this issue is the fact that we all basically walk around with a computer in a pocket and there is mm -hmm. this expectation now pervasive that probably got exacerbated over the last couple of years that we need to be accessible 24-7. And so we have to have these devices. We feel pressure to be checking those devices. And a lot of us also turn to the devices to escape when we want to unwind, to mm -hmm. look up recipes, scroll through Instagram, and so on and so forth. So mm -hmm. the pressure is there, but ultimately the way that it ends up filtering into a relationship is that it sends a clear signal to the other person that I'm more interested in this or I prioritize this mm -hmm. more than I prioritize you. And for some couples, you were, um, you were very clear that you weren't alluding to being unfaithful, but sometimes people will experience diminished trust trust. Why are you always on your phone? What is it that you're doing? Especially when the person uh, on the receiving end of that question slash criticism isn't uh, overly transparent about what they're doing on their device. Or defensive um, as well. Now, we haven't talked about gaming, but we have had a text message here. Um, no name on this one. By all means, get in touch. We leave, leave your name off. It doesn't matter. 
saying, interesting timing. At the end of my patience about my husband in gaming, as soon as the kids are in bed, he disappears until two or three in the morning. I've tried to broach this at different times, but he gets super defensive and turns it on me, e.g. I'm trying to control him. I honestly just think he's deeply unhappy in his life and our relationship. Not so much of a question, but I'm wondering if you can help there, Dr. Sarah. Well, I think one of the things that we need to do is when we want to approach our partner, really tap into what it is that that we need, number one. And number two, when we engage with them, in order to have a more productive conversation, it's helpful to try to elicit information and understand things from their perspective. So if the listener, although I can completely understand the the frustration in a situation like that, if it's ongoing, Mm -hmm. is approaching her husband and saying, you're always playing video games and why don't you ever want to spend time with me Uh, it will likely be interpreted as a criticism then the defensiveness will kick in and as you and I have discussed before defensiveness can be in terms of you know denial or rebutting the argument or it can be withdrawal and Mm -hmm. video games can be a form of withdrawal Mm-hmm. What, so what would your advice be for this listener? Is, it sounds, she says she's tried talking to him at various times, and I'm sure it's not always that, you know, please get off that game, it's driving me absolutely bonkers. I'm sure it's at other times of saying, you know, this is how I feel, and can we, can we talk about this? But yeah. what would you advise if this, if this listener was in your chair at Thrive, what would be your next steps? Well, I'd, I'd work with the listener to figure out what makes sense given their context, but mm-hmm. for simplicity's sake, I would probably go back to what I suggested, which is, what, what do you need? What do you need? It might be something like, you know, you want to play the video games and it's important to you. What is also important to me is that we have a check-in every evening, every other evening, a dinner where we don't need to worry about video games and devices and things like that. So making... Not, um, not only commenting on what the person is doing, but also making a request for what it is that you need to feel more connected. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Sarah, I'm curious as, um, as well as in terms of positive impact of technology on relationships. What have we seen in, in that space? Well, technology can be beneficial to relationships. A lot of times people will utilize things like Netflix and watch TV together and uh, it's especially productive if you have conversations about what it is that you're watching <laughs> you afterwards. You mean rather than just turn it off and go straight to bed without talking? <laughs> which happens, yes, which is course. definitely bound to happen, but absolutely it's helpful when it, when it kickstarts a conversation and it ends up providing a ritual of connection at the end of a busy day or a busy week. And sometimes people will have shared content, whether it's a social media account, maybe they have a, a, a blog or something that they're doing online, and if they're working on contributing to it together, they're creating something uh, that's shared, and that can be really special. Right now, we are talking tech because us adults love lamenting groups of teens who would rather be on their phones than with each other. But data shows that teens and adults alike tend to struggle to prioritise the personal, real-life interactions in front of us over the tempting allure of our phones. So we're talking technoference now with Dr. Sarah Rasmi from Thrive Wellbeing Centre. And we've had a number of messages on this topic. And I feel like you know, it's really important to not demonise technology. It's not going anywhere and it can be hugely useful. An interesting question from Gillian has been in on the text line saying, what if you're in a long-distance relationship? How can you make that work? Any insights there, Dr. Sarah? I would probably suggest for this question as well as in general, trying to make our technology use very deliberate. So as you were saying, it is a tool that can bring us together. And if we have a plan of how we're going to use it to connect, that will be helpful. And that might be in terms of formulating when we're connecting. It might be in terms of formulating where we will be. When we are connecting, forming rituals of connection in a long-distance relationship will require technology. So perhaps coming up with a plan that every single day this person on the way to work is going to send over a voice note Mm -hmm. or a picture or something along those lines. So being deliberate and having that predictability will provide the sense of consistent connection as well as some security in a relationship that can be quite challenging, relationship mm-hmm. circumstances that can be quite challenging, I mean. I like that idea of being deliberate. I think it's good to have those little milestones and markers in your day, and me and my husband are the same. Just after just about quarter past five, driving home, and we have like a little download in the car because 
you know, it's like with family life, you know, you see the kids and you can't actually have a conversation for quite some time and you get to eight o'clock when they're in bed and you don't really want to talk to anybody. Um, so being, being deliberate, love that. Um, th I have checked, this is not from my husband, who says, any advice for, for a man who's really sick of taking photos of his wife for Instagram? the insta husband the struggle is real the struggle is real i don't know if this is a, a, a joking message or not but i think it does actually speak to the point that a lot of a lot of couples and individuals struggle with is like not being in the moment taking photos and taking photos for what purpose you know yeah. and i'm certainly not saying this about the situation because i don't know who you are i don't know anything about your relationship but is it taking photos to get approval is it get, taking photos to get attention what would you say about the role of our camera phones when it comes to technoference I think you're spot on, and I think the frustration probably isn't with the actual act of taking the photo, but rather it's about the disruption that they might experience when they're trying to connect. I mean, we've all been there. We're having a nice moment with family or friends, and somebody's very insistent on, on capturing it because, you know, on their end, they want to be able to remember it, uh, in addition to some of the reasons that you mentioned before, but it it puts a damper on things at times. So mm. if this is a consistent issue that this person is facing, then what I would do is have an open conversation and establish some boundaries. I don't mind taking your picture. I would like if we kind of restricted it to the first five minutes or 10 minutes of our mm. outing, the last 10 or 15 minutes. It wasn't an ongoing thing. I'm going to take a maximum of five or 10. And after I take those shots, you're just kind of going to have to pick the one that's the best. We can't just be recreating the scene. This is not all my job. Afternoon. <laughs> <laughs> a message from exactly. Ash. She says, uh, Ash says, um, my, uh, my wife has a rule when we go out for dinner. It says the camera eats first. <laughs> <laughs> Um, a message here, no name on this one, saying, um, I had a friend whose husband was addicted to World of Warcraft. It took over his life completely and started to impact on his job. He had friends in there who he talked to more than her. She gave him an ultimatum, either her or the game. He lied to her constantly, told her he wasn't doing it anymore, but he was, and eventually things got so bad they had to delete it. It did, um, it did make him stop, obviously. But that's an interesting point in terms of it tipping over into addiction. And I wondered what are some of the warning signs that you might need some professional help in, in terms of getting some balance into your life, whether it is gaming or a gadget? I think when it's something that you feel, com you feel compelled to do, you're unable to control urges to do it, even when you recognize that it's something that you, you shouldn't be doing or you think you should be dialing back. And importantly as well, when you're noticing that it's impacting on your day-to-day -day functioning. So mm -hmm. if Sometimes people will do things like call in sick, for example, because they want to play their game or it's negatively impacting on the relationship as this person is describing. So if it's affecting your day-to-day -day life and you recognize that it's something you need to pare back and you're having difficulty doing that, then it probably would help to chat with someone to figure out how to address it and move forward individually as well as with your partner. And lastly, I want to pick your brains on that very topic about putting in some, some downtime away from tech and, and putting some boundaries in place. Is there any practical steps that you would advise anyone who's listening today going, oh, I think this might be me. This could be us. I think, again, making the use very deliberate. You can have, for example, a tech-free time or a tech-free zone. You might wish to instill that we're going to have dinner every night and for that you know, 20, 30 minutes that we're eating everybody's phone is going to be away or we're going to go for an evening walk and leave our phones at home, uh, for example. And then the, that, that's in terms of the time, uh, the, the place, there can also be the time that we're going to turn off our notifications or put our phones on silent after eight o'clock, mm -hmm. for example. So those are a couple of I want to say simple, but they're very complicated and difficult to execute. <laughs> simple simple ideas. in theory, simple in theory. Exactly. But I think even having an awareness around it can be, can be that first step of going, actually, this isn't really working, or actually, I'm going to make a decision. You know, we've talked about the Gottmans before and, and some of the biggest kind of takeaway I've taken from, from their research is about turning towards your partner. And sometimes that is physically turning towards them and listening to what they've got to say, but sometimes it is putting your phone down and saying, as you alluded to earlier, in this moment you are my priority and I care about what you've got to say and let's 
let's let's be there together. Um, Dr. Sarah, thank you so much for your time today. A very, as I said, modern problem, but um, one that is going to be ongoing and I suspect not getting any better for an awful lot of people, but raising awareness in ourselves uh, is definitely the first step. Um, Dr. Sarah, how can people get in touch with you, follow you for some great resources that I know you have online? People can find all of our resources and information on thrive.ae, and we also have our Instagram, Facebook, social channels, Thrive Wellbeing Center, and I have my own at Dr. Sarah Resney. Thank you so much for your time today. Really, really valued. Look at us using technology for good. Look at me. I'm in Abu Dhabi. You're in Dubai. We're chatting. We're sharing. It's not, it's not all doom and gloom. Dr. Sarah Rasmi, absolute pleasure. Thank you so, so much. We are broadcasting live from the Abu Dhabi HSBC Championship. It's afternoons with me, Helen Farmer, here on Dubai I 103.8. I'm live until five. And I tell you what, it's really interesting to be here for, for so many reasons. But there's lots of little touches that when you're tuned into them, you come to realize that this is a tournament with a difference. And we're speaking now to Andrew Lynch, speaking to us from the UK. He is the head of CSR for the DP World Tour, talking sustainability. Andrew, what an interesting job. Um, how are you this afternoon? I'm very well, yeah. Thanks, and thanks for having me, Helen. It's great to, to showcase what we're doing. So, yeah, much appreciated. It, it's, a sh- it's a shame you're not here enjoying the sunshine, Andrew. It's absolutely glorious. How is it in the, in the UK today? <laughs> it's uh, cold and frosty, and I, do, no. I wish I was out there, but uh, one, of, one, of my, uh, one of my colleagues, one of my team is out there taking care of a, a few things. So, yeah, trying to do the right thing and uh, limit our, our carbon footprint as much as we can as a as always... department, especially. Just about to say that you're bang on brand thinking about reducing that uh, that airtime. But as I said, it's so interesting because when we were briefed on, you know, this is where you're going to be parking and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. It was like, make sure you bring a water bottle because there will be refillable stations um, across the site. And I was like, well, I mean, I don't travel without mine anyway, but, like, but that's fantastic. You've been really instrumental in putting together some of the sustainability issue, um, initiatives around this. Um, tell us a little bit about what you've been doing in the run up to the tournament, first of all. Well, yeah, there's there's so much going on across all our sustainability initiatives at, uh, at the DP World Tour and the European Tour Group. Not not just this week. I think one of the things that really has has driven what we're trying to do is us signing the United Nations Sports for Climate Action Framework in the summer last year, which which ultimately has us on the hook, as it were, for reducing our carbon emissions by 50% in 2030 and then being net zero carbon 10 years after that in 2040. So it's, you know, we're we're taking a real concerted effort in in all that we're doing from, especially from an environmental perspective. But I think that having that target of being net zero carbon by 2040 is what we're, we're driving all our event operations towards. So there's these little things that add up to a big difference. As I said, no, you know, no plastic bottles, for example. But as we were walking in, I noticed you've got solar power as well across the tournament. Tell us about that. Yeah, that's well, luckily that we're in in, uh, in Abu Dhabi, <laughs> where obviously the sun is 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 almost always shining. Um, it allows us to to roll out an initiative such as that. But you, yeah, you're dead right. We've got a couple of locations there on site. Uh, we've got over 500 square meters of solar panels which is allowing us to power some of our temporary event infrastructure such as some of our offices and hospitality units media center as such but um you know thankfully with the amount of sunshine that that there is down there we're able to save it'll be a little bit over 3500 liters of, of fuel this week which is which is just a great step in the in the right direction and it's yeah doing that little bit extra to help us with our sustainability goals not just for for this event but for for going forward but but you're right there's there's so many other little bits and pieces going on that wouldn't necessarily be uh, front and center to the to the viewing public mm-hmm. and those those on site but uh, just those uh, you know through our partnership with Verda, we're diverting 70% of our waste from landfill uh, as you mentioned, we've got no plastic bottles on site, or, or I sincerely hope that they're, they're not. Anyway, it's difficult to control what the, the public bring in, but there's there's none available. Uh, we're using entirely recycled water on the golf course. We've got LED lights across all the, the temporary structures um, that we have there. 
uh, food, all the food waste has been centralized and been then composted into, into grey water um, and used as, uh, as fertilizer as well. And then wow. uh, one of the cool things, I think, is that all the cooking oil from all our um, kitchens on site is then being turned into European grade biofuel. So um, just, just nice little things, you know, that you wouldn't necessarily see. Um, a lot of things going on back of house, but um, trying to reduce where we possibly can is is definitely front and centre of our our event operations teams. I think that's exactly it. It's things that you necessarily wouldn't notice. I mean, now we're hearing about that. It adds that feel good factor as a visitor here to the tournament, and I think that's so so important. Kind of moving forward, that this just becomes the norm. You know that there are other you know tournaments and industries and sports that could be taking a leaf out of your book. I'm glad you mentioned about the watering though, Andrew, because I feel like that is a bit of an elephant in the room. That given you know the lush greens here um, at at Yas Links when we are indeed in in a in a desert. So can you speak to us a little bit about the priority around using recycled water and actually what that looks like in practice? Yeah, exactly. Water is is a big problem around the world, but especially in, in a region where there's so little rain, it's not, it's not such a big problem in the, in the UK, that's for sure. But (laughs) we, we, we need to be, you know, golf courses are front and center really for climate change in the, in the sense that we're, you know, we play in, in a nature reserve in, in, in some respects with, there's lots of, um, you know, living species on, on the golf course. Using recycled water is—it's a real—it's a key element of that. And we are watering much less of the golf course now than we would have done even even a couple of years ago. Because I think people are beginning to realise that, of course, yeah, we're playing a professional golf tournament, and there needs to be a certain standard of playing surface. Of but the little bits around the edges. Do they need to be as lush and green, and do we need to have you know stripy grass everywhere? You know, probably not. And when you explain to people the reason why we don't is because we're trying to conserve what is you know arguably one of the most precious resources on the planet. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that fact is not lost on us. It's not lost on our agronomy team, and it's something that we're there sharing with our with our players and everyone involved in the tournament that. Um, look, we're going to provide a great playing facility, but it might not be as good as it looked two years ago. And the overwhelming majority of people are absolutely fine with that. They understand what we're trying to achieve. Well said indeed, big picture. Um, speaking of the big picture, you're talking about your long-term goals when it comes to being carbon neutral. Um, what does that actually mean? Um, and, and I guess I wanted to find out a little bit. You mentioned how many years in the future is that going to be the case? If fingers crossed. Uh, 2040. As part of the yeah the United Nations Sports for Climate Action framework that we are a signatory of from from the towards the end of the summer last year, um, carbon neutral is it's it's an interesting phrase and yeah it's a, it's a really good question. It's simple yet complicated. Mm-hmm. And if if you or anyone else was to sort of you know Google online what is what is carbon neutral, there's there's quite conflicting information out there. But ultimately. What it, what it means is reducing where you can, reducing your carbon emissions. So the fact is, you know, we, we don't have plastic bottles on site this week. We're generating some of our own power. We're using recycled water, so on and so forth. Then there are some unavoidable emissions. We can't control at the moment how fans get to the golf course. And, mm-hmm. of course, we have players that fly in from, you know, all over the world to the tournament. So... We don't have direct control, but we acknowledge that that is a part of our event footprint. Mm -hmm. And we therefore credibly offset those emissions via the gold standard. And we've been doing that for, for, for a year now. And I think it's important that we are seen to be doing the right thing, uh, which we absolutely are. Um, Andrew, my last question to you is, I guess it puts the responsibility back to us as, as visitors and, and, and sports lovers. You guys have got some fantastic initiatives in place. What can we be doing to play our part to make this a sustainable tournament as, on, a, on a very small basis, but it does add up? It does. I think there's some, some, some simple actions. And of course, you know, society needs to, to gradually move towards just thinking about what sustainability means. But uh, at the event in particular, I think there's 
obviously bring your own water bottle. Um, I think if you can you know, take public transport to the course, that absolutely helps. Um, keeping to you know, designated paths and, and walking areas um, all, all play a key part in, in what we're trying to achieve. And then lastly, and this is something that we are absolutely not forcing um, upon people, but we have got more vegan options than ever available on site across our players' lounges, our hospitality units, and then our public catering facilities. And it's not to say that people need to not eat meat, but it's just highlighting that there are more vegan options available, which ultimately is uh, one of the big carbon emitters as well, the meat production industry. So Thank you, I think Andrew. all those factors combined will, will help us you know, achieve our, our long-term goals. Really appreciate the insights. Thank you so, so much. I know a lot of work going on behind the scenes and it's brilliant to see it um, in, in practice right here at Yaslings. Andrew Lynch speaking to us, head of CSR at the DP World Tour. This is Afternoons with Helen Farmer on Dubai I 103.8. They've led us out of the studio. We're on the road in our nation's capital of the Abu Dhabi HSBC Championship. Brilliant atmosphere in the village. If you are here, pop along. Um, rather amusingly, our studio is kind of mirrored. So we're getting a lot of people coming up thinking that they're cleaning, like cleaning their, uh, you know, something out their teeth and looking at their hair. Um, and we can see everything. You have been warned if you are coming down. Really grateful now to Graham Glynn, the championship director, who's made time to sit down with us, explain a little bit about what's been going on behind the scenes and what we can look forward to over the next few days. Graham, take a load off. Sit down. I know this has been a long time in the making. Tell us a little bit about the build and what's been going on behind the scenes to get to this point. Thanks, Helen. Um, well, I suppose we start the planning for this event uh, this time last year. Oh, as soon as we're, we're, we're done here on, on Sunday night, we, we start planning for the, for the year ahead. Uh, we work with all of our key partners, um, Abu Dhabi Sports Council, who own this tournament, and uh, HSBC, Rolex, Aldar, all these companies that we work with throughout the year. We put our plans in place and um, we bring our team out. We have a big team in, in the UAE and then we bring some more out um, from the UK office. We start to build in early November. Wow. Yeah, so we've and been, you, we've and been here a while. you can tell, though, that, I mean, it, just, it feels so established. Such a lovely atmosphere, as I said. And this is, this is day one. So things over the next few days amping up, though. But because we've been, you know, I've been chatting away. I haven't been keeping an eye on what's been happening on the greens. Can you give us a little quick update about what's been unfolding so far? Yeah, it's been a really good day. Um, great weather but there is a bit of wind, there is um, a lot of wind so yeah. uh, play is quite slow today and we're hoping we will get finished this evening but um our actual our 23 2023 Ryder cup captain uh, luke donald was leading the last time i checked um he had a great score of minus eight um and some really good names on the leaderboard um shane larry seamus power um, right up there so yeah really good golf and it's going to be a brilliant weekend ahead over the next four days all this unfolding what's at stake what makes this tournament special do you think and, and what are they playing for um this is the first rolex series event of the year um so we've got a a very sizable prize fund of nine million dollars um <laughs> and world ranking points but with this year with a Ryder cup in in rome coming up in at the end of september um those Ryder cup points are really really important mm -hmm. so all of our top European players are looking to get into that team and have that experience later in the year and uh, you know this is a great place to start and, and get your name right up there. So the weather's just gorgeous I have to say this is you know Dubai springtime the sun is shining it feels fresh we've got that lovely breeze and I would encourage anyone to come down even if you're not a massive golf fan to come down and just enjoy this atmosphere there's going to be loads happening over the next few days we've got also kind of themes as such today we've got you know community tomorrow's the foodie day we've got ladies day family day let's um Let's start with some of the things you haven't had before. Um, what's kind of new for 2023? Yeah, I guess we've um, ramped up our music uh, and yes. entertainment. So we've got four nights of or evenings of, of live music. Um, so we've got um, well, my, my favourite um, band name I think I've ever heard of is the, the Tasty Biscuits. <laughs> so yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing them. Uh, we've You've got, got Abri as well. We've I got think. Abri, yeah, exactly, Brilliant. yeah, yeah. So that'll bring down them. Um, so games playing around, uh, finishing around uh, five thirty. It's kind of sunset time, but you can stay in the village tonight until about seven o'clock. But understand you can have a few more late nights over the weekend. Yeah, we're going to stretch it out over the weekend, and uh, yeah, so we're hoping to close around ten p.m. Friday and Saturday night, mm. uh, so you can enjoy the golf, enjoy the entertainment, enjoy the F and B. You're a family man as well. What about the kids? Can, are they more than welcome to come down, and are they going to be entertained? Oh, absolutely. Uh, kids are so important to this tournament. Um, um, the Abu Dhabi Sports Council and HSBC set up the Future Falcons um, many years ago. Uh, yeah, th that program has introduced over 80,000 children to golf. Um, and on mm -hmm. Sunday, we'll have 
um, the EGF um, come down and run a competition on our um, children's area. We've got some golf holes set up. We've got some, um, they can get onto the driving range and actually hit some golf balls alongside the pros, which is That's really cool. Very cool. Um, and on top of that, we've got um, movie days every day. We'll have a movie at 4 p.m. Um, we have a bouncy castle area. We've got a dedicated kid zone with lots of games and entertainment and coloring. And um, we're having a magic fill down. We've got a oh, s- singing princess and yeah, lots to do. I would also like to say from like a visitor point of view, it's a really, really smooth experience. You know, we parked so easily. There were guys bug- with buggies bringing you along smiles at every turn so you've put together such a lovely lovely event from a visitor point of view as i said i'm not hand on heart a massive golf fan i don't know that much about it but to be here and as i said people a lot of people people sneaking off work earlier but over the next couple of days and really happy to be here lots to see lots to do lots to eat as can we talk about ladies day it's going to be over the weekend are we looking for some best dressed we are um yeah it's been a big part of this tournament for many years the ladies day and it's a a day to see and to be seen at so yes. yeah we'll have a competition for best dressed um there is a glitter station so anybody who wants to get mm. all glammed be dazzled. up yeah. Yeah. yeah and a few free drinks for ladies as well i've understood there's free ice cream so there is a whole whole lot going on as i said if you're not you know get your eyes glued to the screen and you're not walking around with the players just to come and be in the village and, and spend some time in the sunshine is just fantastic what about getting in tickets all that logistics stuff going what do we need to know yeah um so it's a free event you um yeah we'd That's love it. every to come along <laughs> you, can't, you can't beat that it's that it's that easy but general admission tickets yeah all tournament days abadabichampionship.com absolutely what are you looking forward to over the next few days i think some really good golf but also having lots of people around mm-hmm. um got to have a big crowds um, a lot of fun, a lot of uh, just exciting entertainment in the village and um, everybody having a great time. Should have a little go of mini golf later. You've I'll got the, long, the longest putters here. I absolutely failed miserably at that um, a, few, uh, a few months ago, but yeah. been practicing behind the scenes. Yeah, 100 foot putt. You can take that challenge on. I'll, I'll take you on. Challenge accepted. Grim mm-hmm. Glenn, thank you so, so much. Really appreciate your time, especially on such a busy couple of days. As I said, the website again, abadabichampionship.com. We're here today and tomorrow, keeping you up to date with all of the latest action over the four-day tournament. It's the Abu Dhabi HSBC Championship. <laughs> Thank you for downloading this episode of the Afternoons with Helen Farmer podcast. Don't forget, you can subscribe. You'll get it direct to your phone as soon as it's out. And you can listen to me live on Dubai I 103.8, Monday to Friday between 2 and 5 p.m. You've been listening to a Dubai I 103.8 podcast. To enjoy lots more from Dubai I in the United Arab Emirates, just go to DubaiEye1038.com or find them wherever you normally get your podcasts.